Hey, I'm Shiloh. And this is David. And this is... Who in the world are you talking about? In the late 70s, a film came out. It was the classic coming-of-age tale, Good versus Evil. Now, in this story, the protagonists band together to save the planet by blowing up the Death Star. Immediately afterward, you have an award ceremony where Han and Luke both receive a gold medal around their neck. Chewie didn't get one. My little girl, it it really bothered her. I don't know why Chewie didn't get an award, but he didn't. But apparently, in this movie, if you save the planet, Yavin 4 being that planet, you get a gold medal around the neck. So Shiloh, here's my question for you. If on planet Earth you save the world, would you get an award? Wow, man, I don't know, Dave. You've made you've given me so much to think about. You know, I I I kind of don't remember if Chewie got an award in Star Wars or not. Uh now I feel really <laughs> he, bad. He didn't he, get he, he definitely did not get an award, and don't Google it. It's you'll go down a rabbit hole you you don't want to go down. Oh wow, but, man! I, well, and now I'm really interested because if if Chewie didn't get an award for saving the world, the universe, I don't know. I'm now I'm calling into question whether you'd get something for saving the world. Well, interestingly enough, a few years ago in 2014, a group of people got together and they created the Future of Life Institute. And you may have heard of some of its board members. They include people like Elon Musk, uh, at the time Stephen Hawking, uh, even some famous actors like Morgan Freeman and Alan Alda. And they got together, they had the Future of Life Institute, and they created the Future of Life Award. And the very first award that they gave out, they gave to a guy that we're going to call Al. And they gave it to him for saving the world. And so that is who we're going to talk about today. Al, the man who saved the world. Who in the world are you talking about, Dave? Wow, you've got me hooked. I want to hear this. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you a big clue right off the bat. Al was a submariner. Now, a, sub, a, a submariner? Yeah, he he uh, he was on a submarine. So, what yeah. what time period does that tell you? Like, we're history by the century. Like, what century or centuries could we be talking about here? Well, uh, for the most part, we didn't see submarines really in heavy duty action. I don't think we had submariners really until about the 1900s. Now. You might say the Civil War had a submarine in it, but uh, I'm going to go with we're either talking about the 20th century or I guess maybe the 21st century. I mean, we're already uh, yeah. we're already 20. Uh, what, what year is it, Dave? Is it 2021? Yeah, it is. And so we're 21 you know, years into the 21st century. Look at that. All right. Yeah, and and really, sub submarines came into their own in the first century or in the World War One with the U-boat. They did exist before then, but they were very rudimentary. For instance, even during the American Revolution. 
That's right, late 1700s, they had a very small one-man submarine. It was wooden. It ran off of basically bicycle pedals. It was called the Turtle, which reminded me of your old car, the Tortuga. Um, it didn't actually ever do anything, but, you know, it, it was a thing. So we're talking about Al. He was a submariner. And I know what you're thinking. You're, you're probably thinking, hey, why have I never heard of this guy? Well, and I don't... You, I, I, let me just back you up there. Going back to you know what I'm thinking. I was kind of thinking that was a cheap shot at my car that you took earlier. Calling it a Tortuga. <laughs> okay, so anyways, go on. <laughs> and I mean, and like that first submarine, it didn't really work. <laughs> That's a, I, when you when you stopped at saying calling my car a turtle, I was like, what's the next thing he's going to say about my car, okay? Anyway, so Al was a submariner. Yeah, and you know, one of my favorite things about history, and you probably feel the same way, is when you learn about something or someone, and you just ask yourself, why have I never heard of this guy? Yes. And this is one of those things, and you wouldn't feel bad if you've never heard of him, because nobody had. In fact, the events of his life, uh, the events we're going to talk about today, were a secret until 2002, and that's when a crewmate came forward and told the world what had happened. And since then, he has received a bit of recognition, even though uh, it's all been posthumously. He, he, he died before 2002. Uh, for instance, PBS had a special about him. It was an hour long, and it was called The Man Who Saved the World. Uh, National Geographic had an article. It was entitled, You, parentheses, and almost everyone you know, close parentheses, Owe your life to this man. So let's talk about Al. Now, Al had seen his close or his fair share of close shaves. For instance, he was in a submarine known as K-19, and they had engine trouble. Now, if you're in your car, maybe not your new car that works well, but maybe the Tortuga, and you have engine trouble, what do you do? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Usually we would um, we would try and roll it to the nearest mechanic shop. Yeah, you know you might pull over. Mm -hmm. You know you might call a mechanic. You might try to work on it yourself. But what do you do if you're having engine trouble and you're underwater in a submarine? And that's where Al and his crew. Well, it wasn't his crew because he was not the captain. But that's the situation they found themselves in. They were having engine trouble. The radio was also broken. They couldn't call for help. But they banded together, and they saved the sub. Now, in the course of events, eight people lost their lives. But the majority of the crew survived. What's interesting is the events that we're going to talk about in a minute were never made into like a Hollywood movie. But this accident was made into a Hollywood film. I was about it to ask. Yeah, I, I thought yeah, I'd heard of that, K-19. Yeah, and it, it also came out in 2002, but it was before the events that we're going to talk about came to light. Uh, the part of Al was played by a guy by the name of Sam Redford. Um, I looked him up on IMDb. Apparently, he's been in a lot of movies, although I had not seen those movies. Um, he's not related to the other famous Redford, Jeremiah Johnson, Robert Redford. But anyways, it was a movie, but it really happened. It was bad. Now, a few years go by, and Al is on another submarine. And these are the events that we're going to talk about today. Now, Al was in trouble because, well, 
I'll start from the beginning. They were in a diesel-electric submarine. Think of it like a hybrid. When you're on the surface, you run the diesel, that powers the sub, and it charges the batteries. But when you go underwater, you can only run off of the batteries. So you're telling me that they were basically in a Prius. The Prius of submarines? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty were, much. Were you already going to make that joke, or was I just already on my way? I, I have like three or four jokes that I chose not to make. Oh. Um, I, but, saw your, I, mean, I, I saw your face starting to light up when I was like, because I thought you'd take another cheap shot at me because I also <laughs> owned a Prius after the Tortuga. Yeah. Okay, so back to the story. They're on the surface, they're charging their batteries, and a plane flies overhead. Now, if you're a sub and a plane spots you, you're in trouble. you got to get out of there quick because that's the whole thing. You want to be secret. So they dove as quickly as they could. And at this point, they were in trouble because they only had about six hours of battery left on the sub. And so they're hoping that the airplane didn't see them. But unfortunately, it did. So before they know it, there are 12 enemy vessels on the surface. And now they're in trouble. They've got six hours of battery left. The AC had gone out. And so that, that might not sound like a big deal. But, you know, if your AC goes out in the car, you can roll the window down. But you can't roll a window down on a submarine. And things started to get pretty hot. The coolest part of the sub was the very front and the very back. And at those parts, it was 110 degrees. That's the coolest part of the sub. What makes it a little bit worse is they were running low on rations. So at this point, they could only drink one, wa one glass of water per person per day. So it's hot. They're running out of water. They're running out of time. And the 12 vessels on top, the 12 enemy ships, start dropping depth charges. Now, Shiloh, do you know what a depth charge is? Uh, man, is that where they try and sink your submarine? Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's that's exactly what it is. Are you? I think you're making fun of me a little bit. Are you making fun of me a little bit? I'm steering clear from all the things that I'm thinking right now. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep this a family show right now. <laughs> so... They're dropping depth charges. And, and what that is, is basically like, a, imagine a barrel. It's filled with explosives. They throw it off the side of a ship or they launch it off the side of a ship. It sinks to a certain depth and then it explodes. So when that happens, uh, if it's close enough to the submarine, you know, the submarine implodes, everybody dies. It's really bad. So they're down there. It's hot. They're running out of power. And the bombs start going off, left and right. Uh, the one man was quoted, uh, he was a survivor. Years later, he said that it was like being inside a, a metal barrel with somebody hitting the outside of it with a sledgehammer. So it would have been a very dangerous, a very stressful situation. Now, the captain at this point, who was not Al, had three choices. Choice number one. Basically, sink to the bottom and die. Run out of power. That's it. Uh, what's interesting is after the fact, when they reported what had happened to the Admiralty, the Admiral told them that this would have been the best choice. Choice number two is go to the surface, hope that the enemy doesn't shoot you, and 
try to limp home, hopefully. Best case scenario, you, you get out of there in disgrace. Now, option three was the interesting one. Option three was to fire the secret weapon. Now, on the sub, they actually called it the special weapon. Only a few people on the sub knew what it was. Now, the secret weapon was a torpedo that had never been fired in battle before. It was a torpedo that was so powerful, you didn't actually have to hit a ship with it. You could just get close, and it would create a shockwave so powerful, it not only would blow up that ship, but it could potentially destroy all 12 ships on the surface, the entire fleet. Now, I know what you're thinking. I need to stop saying I know what you're thinking because I don't know what you're thinking, but torpedoes aren't that powerful. Well, this one was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a pretty powerful torpedo. <laughs> I don't know why. It was. And the reason it was powerful, Shiloh, is it was equipped. You would win every... You would win every game of Battleship, basically, is what you're telling me. <laughs> it's like if you were playing Battleship and you just hit the board with, like, a hammer. Yeah. You know, it's like, you sank my Battleship. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. You sank all my Battleships. One ship. Yeah, I don't I even... need that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that game when I was working this up. But, but basically, the reason that that torpedo was so powerful is it was equipped with a nuclear warhead. Wow. And so... You know, if you have trouble sleeping at night and you live in a coastal city, well, here's, unfortunately, one more reason to stay up of, you know, not being able to sleep at night. Nuclear torpedoes are a thing that exists. Wow. And so, you, you know, the captain, who was not Al, he had his three options. And, you know, this was a very stressful situation. It's hot. You're thirsty. You know, bombs are going off around the ship. He... He gave the order to fire the secret weapon, to fire a nuclear torpedo at the enemy fleet. So with, with all this going on, Dave, I'm kind of starting to be able to pick up a little bit more on, on a time frame that we're talking about here. Uh, as far as, you know, I want to know who in the world you're talking about. You're telling me we're yeah. in a submarine armed with a nuclear weapon. I'm thinking this is sounding awfully close to the... 1960s 1970s something's going on here uh between uh, major world powers that have nuclear weapons so this is Man, very you know, very Shiloh, interesting very interesting you're you're making lots of good guesses there and mm. you know the interesting thing about nuclear weapons well i say interesting it's really a horrible thing but right now only one person has the ability to fire a nuclear weapon like if you're in the united states so, for instance, in the United States, only the president of the United States can give the order to fire a nuke. There's actually a guy whose job it is to follow the president around with a briefcase with the nuclear launch codes in them. Uh, it's called the nuclear football, and he has to be with the president everywhere he goes just in case, because if another country were to launch a nuke, you have about 12 minutes to decide whether or not you're going to have a counterstrike. And so, at this point in time... That wasn't a thing yet. So you literally had hundreds of people around the world that were not heads of state, that were people like, you know, aircraft pilots and submarine commanders that had the ability and the power to fire or drop a nuke. Now, in this case, you needed the captain 
and you needed the first officer to agree to fire a nuke. And they each had half of a key. And if you put the key together, you could turn it in the sub and it would launch a nuclear torpedo. So the captain, he gave the order. The first officer or the political officer, he seconded the order. Al, who was neither of these people, said no. And then he tried his best to convince the captain not to launch a nuke. Now the captain assumed that the war had already begun because the enemy was dropping depth charges on them. Al argued that maybe, just maybe, they weren't at war yet. And his reasoning was they knew exactly where the sub was, they had been dropping depth charges not on them but near them, maybe they were just trying to get them to come to the surface. So Al reasoned that we should go to the surface and we need to call headquarters for confirmation. We need to call Moscow. Whoa. You see, Al, or really Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, was not the captain of the submarine, but he was the Commodore in charge of the flotilla of four submarines that were on their way from the Soviet Union to Cuba in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is amazing, Dave. So... This was what what time were we talking about Dave what year was so, this So this was 1962 and it was a 13 day period and if you don't know anything about the Cuban missile crisis cuz like for instance you and me Shiloh we were not alive when this happened mm. our parents were alive but we were not alive And I like this quote it's from Arthur M Schlesinger Jr uh, he was an advisor to John F Kennedy who was the president he said this was not only the most dangerous moment of the cold war It was the most dangerous moment in human history. So basically, you had the two major world powers. You had the United States and the Soviet Union. They had their nukes pointed at each other. Uh, They had some events going down in Cuba, and there was this great tension during these 13 days where a lot of people thought there was going to be a nuclear war. Uh, I mean, people were, you know, digging bomb shelters in their backyard and having conversations with their neighbors about how, hey, you need to do the same thing because there's not enough room for you in our shelter. You know, kids have fire drills today. They were having drills about what do you do if there's an atomic war? And at this point, it was almost like if you had two guys with guns pointed at each other's head and both of them are wondering like, hey, is the other guy going to pull the trigger? You know, what happens if you light a firecracker right behind one of those guys? Uh, It's pretty much agreed upon that if a nuclear weapon had gone off off the coast of Cuba and, you know, destroyed the American fleet, more than likely 30 minutes later, hundreds of millions of people in multiple countries would be dead. Now, there would have been, yeah, there would have been so much fallout and everything else associated with nuclear war. Yeah. yeah. Very tense time, yeah. And so Vasily... Alexandrovich Arkhipov convinced the captain to come to the surface. Uh, You can see photographs that the uh, American destroyers took of the sub at the time and even some videos. And they they basically went back to Russia 
uh, with their tail between their legs, and they got in a lot of trouble from their superiors because they felt that they made the Soviet Union look bad by running away. Now, the events that we talked about today, nobody really knew about. The only people that knew about it were the people on the sub and then the immediate family of Arkhipov. Um, it's interesting, there was an interview uh, with his wife that I saw on that PBS special, and she said that she felt like the events of the K-19 accident really influenced the way uh, Vasily uh, acted aboard the B-59, well that was the name of the, uh, the sub, the B-59 submarine during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, because the engine trouble that I mentioned before, it was actually um, uh, uh, trouble with their nuclear reactor. The men that died died from radiation poisoning, and he saw that up close and personal, and he knew that he could not do that to hundreds of millions of people. So when two people said that they should fire a nuke, he spoke up and said no. And by That's... doing that, a lot of people felt like he saved hundreds of millions of lives. Yeah, go ahead, Shiloh. What were you going to say? No, that's really a great story. Uh, I appreciate how you said uh, he did know that it was a bad thing to release that kind of uh, damaging radiation. You know, at the time, a lot of people probably didn't fully understand the effects of that kind of radiation, but uh, he sounds like he was intuitive enough to realize that that would not be good, that there was going to be more than just an explosion and damage from from a bomb, but this was going to cause very long-term damage you know and obviously the world war ii the nuclear bombs that have been dropped he'd seen and and known about that but it sounds like a man that he didn't just you know save a lot of people off of chance he really made a conscious decision to do the right thing so interesting yeah and i like the quote from uh, robert mcnamara because he was the secretary of defense at the time uh when the, the story came out in 2002, because he was still alive. Um, he said that we came close to nuclear war, closer than we knew at the time. Uh, there was another quote from him where he basically said that uh, uh, Vasily saved their lives. So Shiloh, that is who in the world I was talking about. Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov. And now yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. Where in the world are you talking about? Well, we're going to talk about that next, Dave. Thank you.